Story Collective. Untold stories by unheard voices. Keystrokes Per Minute, a limited series podcast about the women of the New Zealand public service typing pools from 1945 till the present day. Hiding my welcome to episode 7, The Public Service and Women's Work. In this episode, we hear about what it was like to work for the New Zealand Public Service, how the standards, bureaucracy and culture shaped the working lives of many typists, and then in the second half, take a broader view of women's work through the eras. In this first half of the episode, listeners will hear interviewees talk about their experiences of working in the public service. They mention some of the specific rules and regulations, as well as the culture that dictated much of their daily working lives. We kick off this section with interviewees talking about their salaries and pay scales, with some explanation of the policies implemented that would mean, as Mary Dooley speculates, that the typist class got left behind. There is an excellent booklet published in 2003 celebrating 100 years of the public service that provides the following information about the eras that were part of the scope of the Keystrokes Oral History Project from 1945 until today. However, we need to reference the period just prior to 1945 to explain the rapid change that saw many more women join the public service during the years of the Second World War, 1939 to 1945. More than 9,000 public servants enlisted in the armed forces. This saw the number of temporary public service staff nearly trebled from 6,600 to 17,600, the majority of whom were women. By 1950, the overwhelming male dominance of the public service had weakened following the wartime appointment of these women staff. Female cadets were finally permitted to join the permanent staff in 1947, and the old rule that women resign immediately upon marriage was dropped. However, whilst policy might have changed, societal attitudes were not always so quick to follow and there was still an expectation that women leave the workforce upon marriage even into the early 1970s. However, by 1955, women represented more than 28% of the core public service. But women clerical workers, and typists were included in this group, were still denied the same promotional opportunities as their male counterparts, and paid far less. The PSA, the Public Servants Union, gained public and political support for a campaign for equal pay and in 1960 the Labour administration of Prime Minister Walter Nash changed the law, allowing equal pay to be progressively introduced into the service. Mary Dooley's career spanned from 1950 to 1993, so she has had a lived experience of how the public service which reflected the views of New Zealand society, valued typists through a 40-year period. Mary starts this clip talking about the unusual situation of working mothers in the 1950s, her starting salary and how the public service attracted staff. She then explains some of the policies that kept the salaries of the typists at the lower end of the pay scale. Can you tell me then... In the 50s, so when uh, women got married, Mm. what happened? Well, I think that, as I understand it now, looking back, and I know that, like, there was a lady that... uh, These young girls were coming in to take over jobs that people were leaving from, 
Uh, one was a case where the woman was leaving because she was having a baby. They didn't ever come back to work usually in those days. They, they left and then they brought up their families. And uh, then the part-time ones would often be women who were coming back into the workforce who had children at school, wanted the school holidays off and wanted to work 9 to 1.30 or something like that. So they'd be at home in the morning or 9.30 to 1.30, a four-hour day. And then so that their kids would be off to school and then they'd um, be home in time for them when they came home in the afternoon. So, and that was quite successful? Well, it was quite we, had to, we had to endure it because it was just the way things were. You could not get staff and keep staff. The pay, I started work the other day after my 17th birthday and the pay rate was £165 a year for my starting day. And when the school certificate results came out a fortnight later, I got a £30 a year rise. I went to 195 and that was my annual salary for that year. And it went up like to 220 or something like that the following year on the anniversary date of my appointment and so on. So did you get a pay rise on each anniversary? Or? Yes, you did. You got it until you'd been there for five years. And then you stayed there unless you were in a graded position. But before I had got to the end of five years, I had become the senior shorthand typist. And then after five years, I, on my sixth year, Miss Willis left, and I actually was appointed head typist of that pool. It wasn't a big, big pool. It was, up to, it was up to nine people. And I worked there and for another, until I'd been in the health department for 11 years. I knew the supervising typists at education, justice, and uh, say social welfare, and of course me at labour, uh, was, and of course health. You know, all of these people, they were very, very, um, I used to think of them as being much, much, you know, more senior than me. I was way down there. <laughs> but then... Um, Do you think they were married women or were they no, single? No, they were all single, each one of them. A lot of them had a story to tell because their fiancés had got killed at the war or something like that. Most of them, though, had some family responsibility, like looking after mum and dad or something like that. And I looked after my mother and father. Did you have any union? Were unions around? Yes, so the PSA. Have, yeah, did yeah you I have belonged any? to that. Did you? Yes. When did you join that? From the 1st of April of 1950. Well, that was my first year. I started in January of that year. And it wasn't until then I decided I should join the union. I think I might have even joined the day I started. I'm not sure. But I do know that my girlfriend who worked in railways department, her birthday was on that day. And so she was going to join the union. And that's why I decided she joined their union and I joined our union. The clerical class, completely. We were totally ignored as far as ratings were concerned, our pay was absolutely... I was rece receiving the sort of pay that a Class 5 clerk would get with 80 staff under me, you know? I mean, I didn't have to do, hand, hold their hand, but I had to find them and get the job done. <laughs> and I do recall that, first of all, when I went to Internal Affairs in 75, that was the next grade, and it was up to 40 staff. It was exactly 40 staff. 
And I was there only about a year or maybe 18 months when State Services Commission decided to divest themselves of the ministerial typing staff and instead of them being responsible for finding uh, staff for ministers' offices, Internal Affairs would look after that because we already looked after Government House, National Museum, National Art Gallery, Historic Places Trust, all the little places all around town were part of our 40 with one or two people in each one of these places. And um, this next 40 was only going to be another 40, so what? So the admin officer, I remember how delighted he was that the department was going to get this responsibility because I found out later, of course, that he got a huge amount extra because his pay went up so much, but mine went up one grade. (laughs) Lorraine tells Judith about how her pay was delivered to her in the typing pool in the 1960s and how different skills were awarded higher salaries. She wisely took her father's advice to join the union that represented government workers, the New Zealand Public Service Association, known as the PSA. Now tell me about pay and conditions. £12.12 12 and 6 was my first pay. It came in a little brown envelope that these two men from accounts came along with this little suitcase every second Wednesday. And, and you all lined up beside him in the typing room. And you get a little brown envelope and mine, William's LE, £12.12 12 and 6. <laughs> Literally, the cash handed to you. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a bank account? Well, you didn't then. Oh, he's had a bank account, but yeah. that was just for savings. You yes. didn't transfer money in those no. days. No. And we used to spend ages plotting how we would rob him. <laughs> These two little men with the brown envelope. Yes. Oh. So your first pay was twelve pound twelve and six. Twelve pound twelve and six, and that was for the first seven Fortnight. years. Fortnight. Oh no, How no, you got raises was? every year, automatic raises. So an automatic raise. Okay. Yeah, but because um, they were always trying to economise, we didn't sometimes get, you know, the. Well, that was it. Sometimes they just didn't. They couldn't give it to everybody, so they no. no I'm talking about everybody in the department yes, didn't yes. get a raise. A raise. But because I did dictaphone, I got an extra, I think it was 50 something, 50 pound or 25 pound or something a year, whereas the shorthand has got much more than that. Did you belong to a union? Did you yes, to I belonged to the union. From the My father told right. me to join the union. Right. Yeah. Why was that? Why did he think he should join the union? Because he'd been in the government, all in the post office all his entire life. Really? So he yeah. was a public servant? And he told me to join superannuation from the day I joined because he said in the Depression, in the government, they kept the people who were on superannuation. So he told me to... And they chucked off all the others. Yeah. Had your mother worked in the government at all? Uh, well, when you got married in those days, you, you had to leave. But she you... she was a, a proofreader at the government print. Oh, so actually, that you had a family connection with the public service for a long time. Yeah. Yes. My father started as a telegraph boy and worked up to being the senior supervisor of all the mail rooms in the North Island. Really? Did many people go on, go out of the typing pool altogether to other work in other positions, or, or to be PAs or secretaries? Yes, yes. Some of, the, some of them became secretaries. Some of them did. Yeah, but the majority, I remember one of our typists kept a list of who came and went in a two-year period, mm-hmm. and it was something like 17 people. Is that right? This, really? was, by the, this was by the time our pool had got bigger downstairs, and we had about 15 people in the pool. Yeah. yeah. Because people didn't want to work in the government. The pay was not good. Oh. By the 1970s, when Minna entered the workforce, the Equal Pay Act of 1972 had been introduced 
which prohibited discrimination of pay rates of employees based on the sex of the employee and gave the employment court power to state the principles for putting equal pay into place. This was one of many attempts via policy to improve the pay equity for women in New Zealand. In this clip, Minna tells us about her salary and the cost of living in the 1970s. My very first pay, I remember getting it, I got $80 a fortnight at Justice. I got a little bit more at the, um, the working holidays. So when I got $80, I cried. And I had a flat, so when we finally got a flat, I had to pay, we paid monthly, it was $120. I got 160 no, yeah, 160 so I only had $40 in a fortnight to buy food, pay electricity and all that sort of carry on. It was quite common for entire families, or even generations within families, to work in the public service, especially in the post office and the railways, two of the largest government departments. In an earlier episode, listeners heard an excerpt of Louise's interview about her role as data entry operator, first for the post office and then the Broadcasting Computer Centre. Louise's sister Annette also started her working life in the post office, as a junior shorthand typist in 1972, progressing to senior shorthand typist with the Regional Engineer's Office in the Heard Street. One of Annette's tasks during her time there was to do the payroll for the post office linesman every fortnight. In this clip, she recounts for Judith what that entailed and how back pay or cost of living adjustments were sometimes quite substantial. Interestingly, Louise and Annette's mother, Kathy, also had a job with broadcasting, though an unusual one, which involved walking around the suburbs of Wellington, ensuring homes had a TV broadcasting licence, which for a brief period of about 10 years was an annual fee of $110 per year per household to fund public broadcasting. After Annette's clip, Sister Louise gives a quick rundown on her starting salary and the cost of living expenses. Like in Hood Street Post Office, it would be salaries. And they would need, so they would just say there were six typists, so four of them might be on salaries because that was a huge deal. Oh, I see. Manually typing really? every yes. fortnight the salary. So so you'd type Smith, Ben, um, uh, Gross, Pay, um, and then minus superannuation. This is for linesmen and everything. Everybody, and us, we typed our own pay. Oh, okay. And we did that, our, our department did that every fortnight manually for nearly 2,000 staff. Then you had to go to your adding machines and add it all up. And no mistakes. Oh, if you made a mistake, it could sometimes take half an hour to find, you know, to balance it. Yeah, and then sometimes you'd have to call up one of your one of your workmates and say, "Oh, can you help me? Because I'm really having trouble balancing this." And we used to get co-opted when there was back pay. Short-hand typists would say, "Okay, um, we've told the clerical staff no short-hand. The next couple of days, everybody's doing cost of living back pay." Um, wage general wage order back pay because there was a lot then. You could go and buy a new car with your back pay, which we we often did. Really? Not a new one, but you know. A little Viva or something, <laughs> which was brilliant. So all those adjustments mm. had to be manually typed. Every every time for every one. Yeah, yeah. And what did you do about lunch and things like lunch, that? Lunch. We had lunch a cafeteria in those oh, days. Oh, cafeteria. And we were on the floor where the we were on the floor where the cafeteria was. Right. And morning tea, of course, you went out and, and it was cheap. queued up. Oh yeah, cheapest chips. Well, I think the first. I'm not sure whether it was the first wage or whether it was after we got a pay rise. But the money that sticks in my head is my first wage that I remember was $33.97 a fortnight. And $16.50. And I paid, I paid my board of $10 a fortnight. I saved some money and I bought my little bits and pieces and I was saving for a car. But you had to pay transport as well. And transport, yeah. 
Sadie tells Eth about her experience of the annual performance appraisal process and how she learned to talk the talk to take the pressure off. Were you always given performance appraisals all the way through? Um, Yeah, um, it was harrowing, you know. um, Once you got up into the career line of senior shorthand typists, you had to go before a panel every year, a panel of four people who would ask you these questions, you know, about how you're managing um, role play, you know, what's the best thing you've done through Give us an example of this that you've done throughout the year. And you've got no training for that. There was one thing, you, you know, I used to just about spend a week of sleepless nights before going into that because that, that was when you came out of that, that defined your, your pay. Yeah. It worked in with your salary. But anyway, I, in the end, I learned how to do it very glibly. What is your biggest goal? To be the most effective and efficient supervisor that I can be. And I used to shock them. And I did that every time. I used to love <laughs> using those buzzwords, effective and efficient. <laughs> Rosemary found the culture was different when she did some relieving work for the 11th floor executives in the GPO. I was asked to go and relieve on the 11th floor. That was for the executive. So I did that for a few weeks. Um, that came with its own set of rules, actually. <laughs> so they used to have a lot of meetings up there. Under no circumstance were you ever to interrupt a meeting of the executive, ever. That was a rule, never interrupt. Um, We were told how to speak to the executive, what we could say, etc. And I can remember that was the first time I'd ever done dictaphone work, Mm -hmm. and it was for Mr Rose, he was called, and he had been to a teleconference in Geneva, and he'd come back with a cassette tape that he needed transcribed. And it was the most boring <laughs> topic. But partway through, um, the Beatles, Let It Be, was on the tape. So whether he decided to break the boredom with Let It Be or how that got there, I don't know. But I transcribed this tell set, it was called a tell stat conference um, and then let in it Geneva, be in Geneva. in Geneva let it be which was a pleasant surprise yeah it's wonderful yeah. it's a wonderful story yeah. um, and I was also and how did the executive regard you? Did, you did you feel then that they recognised the value of, of the typist and the short type dictaphone or do you think they just regarded it as part of the equipment I think that we were just regarded as part of the equipment. Mm-hmm. I think the, the mm-hmm. expectation was that we were there and we'd do our job really well and mm-hmm. relieve them of any worry yeah. that they had about their work. Yeah. Jill was also exposed to a new environment when she was sent to a relieving role, this time at Government House. So 69, you were promoted to senior... senior. Mm. What did that change for you, presumably your pay? Yes, I think that's when I was sent off to do those big verbatim shorthands around that time. Right. 
And I also got um, to spend a week relieving at Government House. Awesome. Governor-General's secretary's secretary had to go to hospital, so I got the job of relieving. Well, it was really nice the first day I got picked up at the station and we're driving to Government House and I passed one of my friends, so I waved out like the Queen. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So you would have been 19? Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, the secretary to the Governor-General, who I was working for, could do 200 words a minute himself in shorthand, which was pretty amazing. And while I was there, it was one of the ladies-in-waiting's birthday. So they were having champagne for her, and the Governor-General came down, so I drank champagne with the Governor-General. <laughs> How did you find the working environment there? Was there quite a bit of formality around it? Yeah, I I found it... My my background was pretty working-class background, so he's dictating things like aide-de-camp, and so I had to ask, what is that, and how do you spell it? Yeah, it was really out of my league. Lynn was challenged by the more formal environment of the Public Trust Office, having left broadcasting, and was given specific instructions on their expectations of how Lynn should be attired. And it so was, the supervisors uh, were strict. It was, yeah, they were, and it was a very formal environment. The um, district public trustee used to ring a bell at 10 o'clock, and that was our signal to go and have a cup of tea. Did you and go it, to a cafeteria? Or oh, just into a little staff room. room. And then at um, 10 past 10, he'd ring his bell again and we'd all have to go back. And if he hadn't finished a drink, that was too bad. There was no talking in the office unless it was work-related. Not um, chatty. No. Um, We we had uh, had muddy brown liner on the floor and these great big concrete pillars. There was bars at the windows and it was was an awful environment. I really loved it. And what about clothes? Were there any rules about clothes? Oh, yes, that was an interesting challenge. So, of course, I'd come from, you know, this radical radio Mm. environment and I turned up in my miniskirts, which I might add were only like a couple of inches above the knee. (laughs) And I got called into the public trust. They weren't exactly indecent. No, 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 not at all. (laughs) Um, I went into the uh, district public trustee's office. He called me in and he said that my miniskirts were most inappropriate in that environment and that I had to wear skirts that were calf length rather than... No. Yes. Really? So I quickly rang my mum, who's a seamstress, and I said to her, Mum, can you quickly whip me up some skirts? They have to be, you know. So she did that. You didn't object to that? Well, I, I was young and I was, yeah. I've got to do what I'm told. So I wore these skirts and um, then in the winter I was biking to work and I turned to start wearing trousers mm. and I got called into the head typist this time. Really? And, um, this was 1976-77? Yes. And After International Women's Year, I'm going to say. <laughs> trouser suits, really nice trouser suits. No, what, what I had was trousers and I used to wear cardigans and yes, things of them. Yes, of course. But he spoke to her, who then in turn spoke to me, and she, he said that um, if I wanted to wear trousers, I must wear a long line jacket that covered my posterior. Oh, my God. I was only about seven and a half stone back then, so it wasn't big. Oh. And um, 
he said because it was distracting for the gentleman in the office. <laughs> so out came a long, long, long line jacket. And then a short time after that, they decided that we should wear a uniform, the typist. And so, Just a pool. Yes. So they got this uniform and it was a cream jacket and it had orange and brown geometrical shapes oh on it goodness. and brown trousers, long line jacket, of course. And it was absolutely hideous. It's so 70s, 80s. And we had to actually buy it ourselves. Really? And I found out through a union friend that they couldn't make me do that. So I rebelled and I refused oh, to wear it. <laughs> And so, yeah, I was a marked woman. They did not like me. I was a young rebel. And, um... Oh, I love it. Robin tells us about the employee's handbook and glide time, which was introduced to relieve overcrowding on public transport into and out of Wellington during peak hours. I think, if I remember rightly, there was an employee handbook. Right. And, you know, expected behaviour was somewhere probably written um I, I do remember about the glide time and not you know taking that to um you know not abusing that but um you know people would kind of particularly on friday i think the earliest you could finish was three thirty. so the you know the, <laughs> the organization was pr- pretty much down on people three thirty on on a friday and Next up are a set of funny stories that could only happen to someone who works in a government department, including bumping into the Prime Minister of the day on a Wellington street. But they sent me out relieving a lot. Another time I went relieving at school pubs, which was school publications. Mm-hmm. They were up Willis Street, but it was an old house. Yes. And uh, when I say it was an old house, it had a bathroom and everything. But the editors were brilliant that they had there. They were like Alastair Taylor, the publisher of Little Red School mm-hmm. Book. I think he was. And, and was James K. Baxter. Every time he got in a row with his wife, he came and slept in the bath. So, and, and they didn't want to be anything to do with education because they were rebels. Yes. You know, they'd just yes. come and go when they felt like it. And the editor told me, one, one of the editors told me once that what they used to do is they used to sleep in bed in the morning and then they'd ring up and they'd put the vacuum cleaner on and they'd you know, ring up education and say, I can't come in today because I'm down at the government printer. Those were the days when they used to trundle around the great big file. Thing, oh, yes. You know, you finish with a file and it would go. We go back down to centralised filing. Yes. And little men would little men would push them around. We had this little lady. Oh, she, little lady. Oh, she was lovely, but she was somewhat wanting in certain things. Mm-hmm. But she was somewhat crafty in others. And I can remember once finding her hiding in a cupboard, and she's writing frantic. And I said, "What's the matter, Jewish?" She had a transistor. And I found out she was the runner for the TAB. <laughs> All these people who didn't have phone <laughs> accounts. Because no one paid any attention to her wandering <laughs> That's a wonderful story. You know where the cathedral is? Yes. When just, yeah, just opposite on Molesworth Street, there was a big, long parking thing. And I, one of my favourite things is watching, there was a, a shop there that used to sell bedding plants. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember getting out of my, coming along, and there was the Keith Holyoke with a thing of, really? of bedding plants. Oh. And he was coming along and he said, don't suppose you'd mind opening the booth? <laughs> <laughs> 
for me. <laughs> Only in New Zealand. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Only in New Zealand could you have that, you know. Just with no security guards around. No. Just getting his own bedding pass. Get oh, getting you to get somebody yeah. on the street to open the booth. <laughs> and there were statues outside there. What, what then was the yeah. SSC in this it, it was just sort of that, oh, that era, whole it was. thing. You come out of that, you've got to be someone from government. All right, fine. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, National had just come into government with Mr Holyoke. Oh, he was the minister. Oh, now tell me about the anecdote with Holyoke. Because yeah. <laughs> that anecdote is... What, so Holyoke was the Prime Minister. Oh, and I had gone over to the Minister of Education's office and it was Lieutenant. Yes. Yep. Lovely man. Uh, and he'd gone out and I was left in charge. I hadn't been there very long, probably a week. And so somebody knocked on the door and walked in and they said, could they see Mr Tennant? And I said, no, I'm sorry, he's out. And he said, oh... I'll just go through. No, I said, you can't go through. You have to wait. And so I, by that time, I'd moved up and was standing fair and square in the door, and he couldn't get through. And so he talked, tried to talk me into letting him go through, and I said, no, 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 I'm sorry. And by that time, I was edging him out the door. I said, nobody comes in without an appointment. And so I edged him out the door and shut the door. And the next minute, a hat comes flying in through the door. The door's opened, and a face comes round and said, you don't know who I am, do you? <laughs> I don't know what his name was. Holyoke. Keith, <laughs> Keith Holyoke. Well, I nearly died. I, I have a very, very poor visual memory. <laughs> and meantime, they're all smoking as well. Oh. And things went on fire. So, you know, paper, and the, someone would have, and the ash would drop, and there'd be, like, oh! You know, and half the page that you're supposed to type would be, we weren't smoking, the typist weren't smoking. Whilst there have been many challenges for the Keystrokes interviewees over the eras since the 1950s, there has been a shift in attitude and how their skills, as administrators and assistants now, are valued. The next two interviewees, Sandra first and then Carolyn, talk about how they've been supported by managers to grow their careers and explain what factors have helped their professional lives. And um, I had a really good boss, you know, a really supportive manager, really supportive of the secretarial profession. Yeah. So I was pretty lucky that way, I guess. Makes an enormous difference. Yeah. Really does. Yeah, so he supported all my, all, me all the way. And I think even in terms of remuneration, um, he was quite supportive of that as well, of recognising the value of the role, whereas I think sometimes that isn't always the case. Very often. It's just work that women do. Yeah. I think I'd just like to comment about changes in the workplace really that we now have women as managers we still have a problem with women who don't get the right training to be a good manager I also am impressed with the fact that no longer being an administrator is that you're just a secretary or you're just doing administration work or you just work in an office that actually it is amongst a good number of people recognised as a career path. In my last few jobs I've had, I've part of what has helped me get those jobs is that I have, A, done some study, that I've recognised that I had a professional body, A, A, B and Z, and they've also the certification has been important. And even though when I get my last job, um, my certification had lapsed due to my um, early retirement, 
it was still that I had worked hard to get to that was important to the person who employed me. We leave the last word on this section about life in the public service with Pamela, who, like most of the interviewees, was proud of their work for the New Zealand government. Wonderful to work for those people. Mm. They, they were courteous. They were courteous. Yes. You were never treated as though you were just the typist, yeah. which is something that has, mm. I have struck over recent years. Mm. Um, it was courtesy. It was just plain good old-fashioned yes. good manners. Yes. Yeah. And they were proud, proud of the job they did. In this section of the episode, we take a wider view of women's work across the different eras of our interviewees' lives, from the 50s to the 90s, to understand the inequities experienced by women, either in the public service typing pools or within their class of work, the clerical and administration field. For this cohort, the inequities existed throughout the whole of their lives, through the education system, the unfair work practices that ensured a lack of progress, both financially and without a recognised career path, as well as in terms of harassment, discrimination and bias. To help us discuss this aspect of women works, I'd now like to welcome my mum, Lorraine Melvin, also known as Rose, to the podcast. Regular listeners will have heard Rose in the role of interviewer for the Keystrokes Oral History Project, and may remember that her working life started in the GPO typing pool in Wellington as a shorthand typist in 1964. Two decades later, the intersection between her career in administration, being a feminist and a long-standing union member, led Rose to becoming a union organiser for the Wellington Clerical Workers' Union. Fast forward another two decades and Rose was able to fulfil her long-held ambition to attend university, aged in her late 50s, towards studying towards a Bachelor of Arts in Gender and Women's Studies with Victoria University, graduating in 2010. Welcome, Rose, and I'd like to thank you and the other team members, Judith Aitken, Eth Lloyd, Rachel Brown, and Maureen Goodwin, without whom this podcast would not exist. But first, Rose, maybe you can tell us about how you became involved in the Keystrokes Oral History Project. I was out for lunch uh, with Maureen, who is a good friend of Judas, and they had had an idea that was growing about there is no history that we know of around uh, women and girls who worked in the public service typing pools. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because I started my career as a shorthand typist in the GPO in Wellington, which was the national office. So Maureen said to me, well... That's fine. Uh, we're meeting next week, so you need to come along. So that's how it all started. Uh, so you started your bachelor studies in 2006, and whilst doing research for your first assignment, it led to an epiphany, didn't it, about your own education experience? Yes. So um, we were ready in our second semester to get down to hard work and research. So uh, Gender 101 uh, was gender analysis. And during my studies, realised that in 1947, the, the uh, Labour government of that time had had a policy that said that all children in New Zealand were entitled to a free education, a free equal edu- education. The reality and the epiphany was that during the 50s and 60s, when I was in school prior to going to college, that 
the general view, and it was probably the same in my home as it was in the school, that yes, there were inequalities, but it was quite appropriate to have them. Because the role of schooling then was to prepare both girls and boys for adult life, and it was essential to maintain social cohesion. So even by the 50s, when you think about coming out of the Second World War and what the expectation was, it was kind of considered to be nature. So the nature would be that I would be required to learn how to cook, um, you know, and sew, and be prepared to be married and, and have children. In this next clip, Maureen and Eth discuss the limited career choices for women in the 50s and 60s, which is representative of a conversation heard many times during the Keystrokes interviews. My sister and I were just talking about this thing just the other day. She wanted, she went nursing, and don't get me wrong, she loved nursing, but she had to go nursing. I probably had to go and do a job as a shorthand typist. Nolene wanted to go into forestry and birds. She would have loved to have gone and done that, but that wasn't a job for women in those days. I know. Teaching, office work, shop work, hairdressing and nursing. Yes, exactly. You did have five choices. In the opening clips of this episode, we heard from interviewees talking about their salaries. And Mary Dooley told us about the disparity between her salary as the head of a department and that of a male colleague. During research for the Keystrokes project, Rose also found out about the size of the pay gap from her shorthand typist annual salary and that of a male clerk. I think I knew, obviously, that they would have been paid more, well, more than myself, but, at, well, after all, I was a junior. So what would happen is you would sit an exam and you would get a pay increase. So once you had your junior typing and your junior shorthand, and then you set your senior, and you would get a, a wage increase. What I didn't really think about or believe was the gap that was between a senior shorthand typist and a, a clerk. And it wasn't until in this project, Rachel and I went to the archives to do some research. And lo and behold, there was these grey files, piles and piles of them for the post office going right back, right back to the beginning. So I thought to myself, wow, I must be in there. So I hunted through, I found my year, and lo and behold, yes, there I am, and it tells you what your exam results were, what your wages were. And so when I get to my, you know, past my senior typing and shorthand, I discovered that I was on something like £365 a year. So it was an an annual wage that, that was in the book. So then I started to think, boy, I'm going to go and have a look. I could remember a couple of names of clerks. So when I went over, I looked and I went, I remember just saying to Rachel, I need to take a photo of this. There was this person that I knew was on over £900 a year as a clerk. I was stunned, absolutely stunned. Talk about inequity. I mean, that's just unbelievable that there were we, you know, with these um, amazing skills. Although I obviously had come up through my life knowing about how far behind we were in, in equal wages. 
but I was actually stunned at the gap um, in those days, in in the 60s. And of course, you know, they believed that we would go off and, and get married and have children and and you would be looked after. So therefore, men had to have these high wages so that they could look after their families. I mean, we were only women. I know. And how were we advertised? Can you remember seeing those pictures of advertising for shorthand typists and sitting on the man's knee and writing? It's You know, it was a common thing you saw. It was advertised in a magazine or... Those words, spoken by Gareth about the way a typist was being portrayed in advertising during the 50s and 60s, speaks volumes about the way society viewed women in the workforce. During the oral history interviews, one of the questions posed to the interviewees was whether they had experienced themselves or witnessed any form of harassment or sexual harassment in the workplace. However, the term sexual harassment is modern and was actually first coined in 1975, when Lynn Farley, American author and journalist, testified before the New York City Human Rights Commission hearings on women in work, defining sexual harassment as unwanted sexual advances against women employees by male supervisors, bosses, foremen or managers. These actual words might not have been used during the interviews, but not because the interviewees didn't see or recognise their status and treatment for exactly what it was, equity and equality denied. Feminists might have given us the language, but decades if not centuries before, women understood and recognised sexism in and around their whole lives. In this first clip, Rose recounts her time in the typing pool and how there was no name, at that time, to describe the inappropriate behaviour and the unfairness of the power imbalance that existed. From my memory, I recall feeling very safe inside the typing pool. I always thought that um, the supervisor was very powerful. And when I mean powerful, she had the ability to protect, particularly the younger junior shorten typists. So she knew of certain people's inappropriate uh, behaviour and, and those were innuendo, comments about your clothing, um, bearing in mind in the 60s mini skirts were, were coming in, asking if you had a boyfriend and, you know, your relationships. It, it seemed to me that if you were engaged or perhaps married, although I don't remember many married women in that particular typing pool at my time, they were considered sort of less fair game, if that's the right word. But of course, as you became more skilled, and once you were you were in your, your senior shorthand typist years, and she would often not have any choice, and you would need to take notes... For me, it was a problem because this particular person would always think it was okay to sit with a cigarette and um, have one hand on your knee. So you would just have to sit there and, and take your notes. But the reality for us was most of our education about that, and there was no name for this. There just wasn't a name for it. But often in the cloakroom, we had our own cloakroom, um, and we'd often have a, a chat about, oh, please, not today. Not today. It's not my day today. 
and we'd we'd laugh and joke and go, no, it's your turn. How long is it since you've had to do that person's shorthand? So we did talk about it, but we had no name about that. Now here are some narrated responses to the question about sexual harassment in the workplace, most from the 1950s and 60s. One interviewee recalled an occasion that required them, as supervisor of a typing pool, to provide protection. I can't say that it was that prevalent, but there was the odd case where somebody being noted for being a little bit too friendly or fresh, and so you would not let the young girls go there. You didn't say anything, you just kept them away. Another interviewee remembers two occasions during the 60s. Twice I got very low-key. Once a man came up behind me when I was relieving, and he put his hands on my shoulders and sort of massaged me down the front, and I was uncomfortable, and I told my boss, and she pulled me out of the office that I was relieving in. And another time, his car was in the garage, so he asked, can I have a ride down to the railway station? And I said yes and he put his hand on my knee and sort of up my skirt while I was driving. And, and I've always remembered that. And another woman remembered the problem of simply going up some stairs. To get to the cafeteria, you went up the spiral staircase. And so what we girls did would hold our skirts down so the men couldn't see up as we went up the spiral staircase. We used to laugh about it though. It was sort of like treating them as creatures. Oh, we can't do that because the men will look up our skirts. Typists tried different methods to express their dislike of being physically harassed. One of them, we used to call him Groper because he put his hand on you all the time. And I remember one of the typists told him to get your hands off me. But you didn't accept it and you sort of wriggled around and manoeuvred your way out of it. In contrast, a couple of our interviewees did not consider what they experienced to be harassment, quoting directly from one interviewee working in government in the late 1950s. Men would flick you on the bottom, but that would never worry you. You took it as a compliment. If they did, it was all, oh, you're looking good today. I see you've got a new boyfriend. It was always taken in a jovial way. Fifty years later, the Me Too movement has lifted a veil, exposed harmful sexual behaviours in the workplace, and demanded that we do better. Which is a quote from an article titled, How Could Central Government Better Respond to Sexual Harm in the Public Service? written by Carrie Buckmaster in 2018 for Policy Quarterly. A link for that article is in the show notes. This paper catches us up to date with what is now termed sexual harm in the workplace and is a sobering read that offers one conclusion that power dynamics influence sexual harm, employees in subordinate positions and women in supervisory roles between the ages of 30 and 44 may be at higher risk as are women in general, migrants, and the financially vulnerable. Equal Employment Opportunities In the booklet 100 Years of the Public Service, the mention of equal pay for women starts way back in 1914, picks up momentum again in the 1960s, and once more, this time with policy and oversight by the Equal Employment Unit during the 1980s. By this time, not only is the conversation about equal pay for equal value for women, but the salary, conditions and opportunities for Māori and Pacifica workers as well. In this next set of clips, listeners hear from two Keystrokes interviewees about the hard work of the EEO officers during the 1980s, 
But before that, we kick off this section with a unique perspective from the daughter of a pioneer of the EEO movement within the public service, Amy Laban. In this first clip, we hear an excerpt of a full interview with Luumana Ra'u, Dame Winifred Laban, who is a former New Zealand politician and was the Labour Party's spokesperson for Pacific Island Affairs and for Interfaith Dialogue. Currently, Dame Winnie is the Assistant Vice-Chancellor Pacifica of Victoria University of Wellington and is a respected leader in the local Pacifica community. Winnie's mother, Amy Laban, was a long-serving public servant and is believed to have been the first Pacifica woman to be a head typist of a government typing pool in the late 1950s. Judith and Maureen interviewed Winnie about her mother's career and we apologise for the poor quality of the audio recording, but feel this is an important piece of history that firmly belongs in the Keystrokes project. My mother, uh, full name, was um, Amy Annalise. She, she was the eldest of ten, and of course the, the girl, and was born on the 28th of May 1926 in Samoa. There were only three really good career options open for women, and they were typing, nursing, and teaching as well. So she also learned shorthand, shorthand typing and typing at St. Mary's. And what happened was that she ended up working for Sir Guy Poles when he was in Samoa working as an administrator and then I think the first High Commissioner before Samoa became independent. And when she worked for him, because she did a lot of the typing and I think uh, a lot of the earlier drafts of the legal processes around the Constitution, um, because people like Professor Davidson, Colin Aikman, people from New Zealand who were good people, who supported Samoa's journey with independence. So she worked for Sakai Poles and... He enabled her to come to New Zealand on a scholarship at Gilby's Business, is it Gilby's mm. Business College mm. in Thorndon. Amy returned to Samoa immediately after finishing her studies at Gilby's Business College. And then what happened was that I think she met Dad and then Sagai, I think, helped them to come to New Zealand, I think because they were both the eldest. Yeah, so it's the whole immigrant story as well. And they came in 1954, and then I was born in 1955, and they got married early 1955. And then Mum, I always remembered Mum, like she took time out because my brother was born, Ken, the following year. And I always remember Mum going back to work. So she, I think she worked for the New Zealand State Advances, I think. Being she worked in DSIR yeah. for Dr. Rafter, who was quite a famous scientist. And then I think in uh, social welfare. And then I think she was probably one of the first Pacific because she was the head of the typing pool and she had a very large staff. Dad actually worked for 40 years for the minister, for the public service, not only in Samoa, but New Zealand. But he was in the Ministry of Works. Mum was the first Pacific um, EEO. So it was the early 80s that the EEO formally... That's right. And, of course, she was the, the one for social welfare. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So that was when the Commission had three 
Yeah. Well, the three commissioners, Tobin was the chair then? Or? I think so, so yeah. So. And then EEO came through That's in right. the early 80s. I That's right. I worked in the commission from 81, mm. and it was becoming a formal policy. Right. Then. Right. In the in the um, in the public service. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I think because Mum was also a minority, and because she understood what it's like to be a minority and to be outside the glass ceiling, yes, she was more open to having diversity in her team. Team. Mm. You know, yes. and so I think the whole it wasn't EEO. It was already perhaps started by yes. people like Mum who occupied those roles and also not only that had to manage the people who wanted their work done immediately. Amy Annalise Laban was awarded the Queen's Service Medal in 1991 for her contribution to community services, Pacific Advisory Council and Samoan Advisory Council. We acknowledge this short clip about Amy's contribution to the advancement of the women of the public service typing pools does not fully appreciate the enormous effort and hard work that she did in creating opportunities and improving the working lives and social progression for Pacifica people over her lifetime. I was here 89 to 96. Yes. And EEO was new. Yes. And there was a wonderful woman there, Isabel, who was the EEO officer eventually, um, is what the title was. And she was such a lone voice. Really? And Mm. she Mm. had been a PA, Mm -hmm. and a senior PA, and I looked up to her, and then she took on this EEO role, and I was like, what is this, what is this? You know, and she was trying to enlighten me. She was such a strong female role model. She was great. And she was PSA as well. Mm. So, yeah, that became her job. And I was like, oh, wow. She tried to do it all on top of being a senior PA. And then actually could win this position, and I thought she was so awesome. (laughs) And she was. Um, But now, really, what's the deal? You know, Rebecca, my daughter, you know, I know. So, but then mm, it was a very big deal. Yeah, it was yeah. a very big deal. So that, but we're still worrying yes. about equal pay. Right. No. Obviously, it was very satisfactory and very productive from your point of view. Was it a yeah. profession that you think has been properly recognised, properly valued, properly placed I don't, in the public service as well as in the wider world? Yeah, yeah. At the time, probably not, mm-hmm. because I remember. My manager at the time, she was always, they were doing pay equity um, conversations across the public yeah. service and, and comparing us to social welfare mm. at the time and what the girls in the type and of pool. For the comparators. Comparators, and, you know, and we seemed to always get paid less than other departments mm. and she was always trying to get us paid more yeah. than, you know, to bring us up on par with other departments and... You know, trying to convince the managers that, you know, they didn't need to buy the field office another car. They could give that to us for a pay rise and, you know, those sorts of things. And um, So I guess at the time, you know, there was always those conversations going on about pay equity. And Did you feel yourself it was valued as a, as a profession in the, in the total workplace? Um, I mean, compared with other skilled jobs like the field mm, offices or the valuers or whatever. I didn't feel... You certainly weren't under. You didn't feel undervalued. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. felt you were just another team within yes. the wider team, yeah. which is great. At, in the department, yeah. yeah, you certainly didn't didn't feel never felt undervalued at all. No. And how did you feel as a public servant? Was that a very was that a significant part of the profession, being a public servant as well as being professional? Yeah, I 
always liked the fact that I worked, I was a public servant, mm. that I worked for the, you yes. know, the government. And mm. Well, here we are, the end of episode seven, the public service and women's work, the last of the full hour episodes in this limited series podcast. I want to thank all of the interviewees, whether their voices have appeared in this podcast or not, which was only due to time constraints or poor audio quality for their permission to record and hear the rich stories of their careers, and I personally took great delight in the way many interviewees expressed their gratitude at the conclusion of their recorded interview about how wonderful it had been to reflect on their working lives, and for many it was the first time they had been asked about such. So now the Keystrokes Oral History Project in this podcast is a legacy for themselves, their families, and future generations to hear their stories either online or at the Alexander Turnbull Library, part of the National Library Archives of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our last episode is actually two half-hour bonus episodes, one about the government typist strike of 1985 and the second, Valuing the Profession, which delves into the work and history of AAPNZ, the Association of Administrative Professionals, New Zealand. The Keystrokes Per Minute project was made possible by funding support from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the Public Services Commission. Listeners can find out more about the project by visiting website www.storycollective.nz. The soundtrack was kindly provided by permission from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra. Find their music and merchandise on bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.